This is So Say We All. I'm Jason Ariola. I'm Stephanie. I'm Sarah Topian. And this episode, we're going to be talking about a a favorite of, I think, all three of ours. Well, maybe the series, maybe not this one in particular. But uh, we're going to be talking about Babylon 5, The Gathering, the pilot movie for the series that launched a year nearly before the actual TV series did. And um, not showing my hand here, but it kind of shows, too. <laughs> so before we get into the nitty gritty of the episode itself, Stephanie, what was your experience with this? Do you remember when you first saw it and like kind of any viewings in the interim since then? You know, I just remember always enjoying Babylon 5. <laughs> it came out when I was under 10 years old. Um, and it was a show that my dad liked. And, well, I tended to gravitate towards shows that my dad liked also. And I really can't remember my initial experience with Babylon 5 or even this particular uh, part of Babylon 5. It's just kind of always been there, and it's maintained its position as one of my favorite sci-fis since then. I mean, I, I actually had a storyline with my Barbie dolls when I was a little girl that <laughs> focused around Babylon 5. Barbie was Delenn and Ken was Sheridan, so yeah. Fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's weird. I could like remember... I can remember Star Trek The Next Generation and how that was introduced to me. Mm-hmm. But Babylon 5, even though I know this one was introduced to me after Star Trek, it it just feels like it's always been a part of my life. I cannot actually pinpoint when I first became interested in Babylon 5. Hmm. Okay. How many times have you seen this, do you think? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, (laughs) The most recent viewing of Babylon 5 I had was probably about four years ago, and I keep waffling back and forth on whether or not I'm going to at least watch highlight episodes here and there for the segments that we're going to be doing on the show, or if I'm just going to try and rely on my memory and the IMDB for a little bit of uh, additional support. Um, But I've watched it numerous times uh, throughout my adolescence and adulthood. Um, When I was a kid and it was kind of up to syndication, um, to dictate whether or not I could watch it. I watched it whenever I could, be it TNT or sci-fi or whatever network happened to be airing it at the time. I know my dad tells me of him actually having to watch it on like obscure uh, local channels at but o'clock in the morning on Saturdays or something like that. Right. But I always got to do it through either TNT or sci-fi, so I probably got into it a little bit later. Once it was available more on DVD, I remember actually getting all of the DVD sets for my dad for Christmas or Father's Day or something like that. And then when I moved out, I took them all. (laughs) 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 He already ripped them to digital copies. It's fine. I wanted the physical. Okay, fair, fair. (laughs) But um, yeah, once those were available and I could kind of watch it on a whim, Um, I say I've probably gone through those DVDs or used the digital copies my dad actually copied from the DVDs I bought him. I'd say at least a half dozen times, if not more. Definitely not up there with as many times as I've watched like Star Trek start Mm -hmm. to finish with the exception of TOS. But uh, yeah, I've, I've watched it a good amount of times throughout my life. Okay. Franny, how about yourself? So for me, I think actually you're the one who introduced it to me and I watched it 
in college. So that's like 10 plus years ago now. Oh, wow. God. Wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I just watched it then and I haven't seen it again since because I think I torrented it mm-hmm. from the old, old torrenting ways. Are we talking like uh, like Audio Galaxy, Moo Torrent sort of thing? Yeah, it was it was it was something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like yeah, Mutant. I I, I did good this time and I actually bought the DVDs to watch <laughs> it. So Well, we're also doing this with like perfect timing because in ten days Babylon five is coming to HBO Max, so there's oh, also that. <laughs> it's also right now on iTunes for like I think the whole series is like twenty or thirty dollars. Oh nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bought that to sort of add that to the thing basically so I can watch it on my iPad or whatever when I, whenever I want, but I still have the DVDs. Anyway, sorry, Franny, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, but that's pretty much my experience with it. I like, I watched it all through once and I think the the main thing was like, I think you were talking a lot about like how like Deep Space Nine ripped off Babylon 5 for a while and, and that's kind of why I started watching it and it was, it was good. <laughs> yeah, there's uh there's a whole weird history that, you know, there's a lot of speculation about um, you know, the 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 creator of this show shopping the idea around and oddly Deep Space 9 which it seems very similar at times, uh kind of came around the same time, so it's just like, hmm, that's there's a little suspicion that uh Deep Space 9's original idea was sort of um cribbed off of Babylon 5, but you know, there's it, you can't really substantiate it completely, but, you know, you can definitely see a little bit of the um, similarities between the two. So as for myself, I honestly, um, I think I'm much in the same position as your dad, Stephanie, watching it on some weird channels at weird times in the morning, basically. Looking up information for the podcast, I found that there was some instances where the show aired on a network that is long, long defunct now and ended up being saved by TNT, I think, for the final season or something like that. And they re-edited a whole bunch of, or not a whole bunch, but they like re-edited this movie that we're talking about today for TV. And um, I, I would say brought it maybe in line a little bit more with the series as it went further down the line because the music changed up for this thing. But I don't remember like when I originally started watching it. I just remember watching it at my grandma's house on her, um, I would say, gigantic TV, but it's probably smaller than the uh, TV I have in my living room right now, but it was, you know, like a foot and a half of wood paneling on each side <laughs> of the TV, too. So, And but, it weighed more than you do. Uh, and... Easily. <laughs> yeah. But I remember sitting on the floor and watching that, and I don't, my grandma was probably like crocheting or something because just was like, why are you watching this stupid, making me watch this stupid thing in the one TV I have? <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't remember exactly, but then I think... I had found the DVDs at Walmart for like $20 for a season. So I ended up just buying all of them. In a, and then I found the movies about the same price and just sort of binged it. And I think that was maybe when I had started talking to you about it, Franny. Maybe maybe it was even before that because time's a little confusing now. Like I don't remember because that was, geez. I mean, yeah, Franny, you and I started talking like nearly 20 years ago probably. Uh, Maybe. Maybe, because we were on Melissa's oh, BBS when 9-11 happened, so. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, so it's been, oh my god, we've known each other 20 years. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where have our lives gone? Anyway, I know where they've gone. Oh, hey, remember, Jason, we're coming up to, uh, we're at 16 years from where we potentially could have actually met. 
We just don't know if we actually did or not. <laughs> That's true. Freddie, did we, did uh, Stephanie and I tell you that story? Uh, no. Okay. So the last Otakon I went to with you guys. Was my first Otakon. Yeah. And Stephanie and I were talking about Otakon and she sent me a picture of the, of like of her cosplaying in there and the cover page or cover picture for that album was her and Sony. Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's a hell of a coincidence. <laughs> Small world. Yeah. So no we kidding. realized we were probably like within a few feet of each other and might have actually talked and everything and just didn't actually consciously meet until about 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah. It is really strange how small of a world it can be sometimes. But yeah, I honestly, I really don't remember when I initially started watching it, but I remember watching this after the series because I figured, oh, the movies all take place after the show. I'll just do that. And then seeing The Gathering after watching the show is like, uh, uh, the quality. I can imagine that being jarring. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that might be another reason why I have a little bit of a lesser opinion of this than maybe I'd like. But, you know, yeah. After seeing the heights that Babylon 5 reaches in the TV series and then seeing what the gathering ends up being, it's kind of like, eh, okay, I guess this was a proof of concept anyway. Maybe we'll go with that. <laughs> it was a pilot. Yes. You have to remember that. Yeah. I guess not everything can be as good as the Battlestar Galactica pilot. Right. That, so. <laughs> we really set the bar high with our first two episodes going over a fantastic pilot. Yeah. And now we're going to an admittedly amazing show with a terrible pilot. Well, yes. maybe not terrible, but a, a, a mediocre pilot. Yes. Something, a pilot that definitely does not... Um... Match the rest of the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So let's go ahead and we are going to do a much more brief synopsis. I would like to actually call this the Sacred Synopsis by the Lords of Cobol, just for a cheese factor there, because a lot of the sci-fi we're going to end up covering in the long run is probably going to be cheesy. So I figured, hey, let's just lean into the Battlestar Galactica mythos and we'll just go with that, basically. Works for me. Okay. All right. So it starts off with Londo giving us an introduction to Babylon 5, um, which is... Really followed by um, a poorly acted second-in-command, Lieutenant Commander uh, Takashima. I don't know how you guys feel about Takashima. I was um, happy to know she was not in the rest of the series, basically, after this. Yeah, her acting was a little bit stiff, and I think that's the biggest problem. I'm pretty sure this was one of her earlier roles. So we kind of got to give her that, but then again... All of the acting in The Gathering and season one is a little stiff. So yeah. there is that. Speaking of some of the acting in season one being a little stiff, uh, this is where we meet uh, John Sinclair the first time. There's a little, little, I want to say he fits in very well with the cheese factor that I mentioned, but at times he's very like, ew, I don't know, maybe a B tier like Kirk from the first season of Star Trek, like, just <laughs> kind of trying for that, but not really hitting it um, in the way that William Shatner was able to. So, 
Um, he meets up with uh, Lita Sinc- or Alexander, a psychic, um, and this also gives us a real fast intro into psychics being a thing that need to be registered. She's a sixth generation psychic as well, which means psychics have been around for like 180 years at this point. If I'm doing my math correctly. That's about right. Okay. And she's also a P5, which also gives us sort of like a little preview into the power levels, I guess, or ability levels of psychics. And this already is sort of where I start feeling like they're trying to cram in a lot into a little time. And I, again, it is a pilot, so I'm trying to cut him some slack here because the rest of the series ends up being pretty good. But uh, just like, okay. And then the do these uh, identicards make more appearances, Stephanie, do you recall? I can't recall off the top okay. of my head. Okay, yeah, because they're, um, it's a little, not a little rough to look at now, but it's like, uh, okay, well, this is fun. So, anyway. <laughs> and then we see uh, Commander Sinclair uh, basically talking a hostage situation down, and that's, he sort of, yeah. I guess you get a sense of what he's like there, but at the same time, it's just like, eh, I don't know. I, I don't want to say I'm kind of glad Sinclair ends up not being the main person in the series after a while, even though he does play a big role, but he kind of does go away further down the road to a much more I don't, supportive role, would you say, Stephanie? Yeah, definitely a supportive role. He's very critical to the story. I mean, it was due to health issues that he was kind of written off and Sheridan was brought in. Oh, okay. In the long run, we'll, we'll I'll cover that a lot more when we get, you know, into the series as opposed to the the pilot episode here. Yeah, yeah. But in the long run, I think it did work out for the better because Sinclair's character was very stiff and trying to fill like every single hero role that you can possibly have. So there was a lot of weight placed on the actor to portray this larger than life character. And O'Hare's acting was conflicting with that big, bold character because he was kind of laid back and mellow and Mm -hmm. very stiff (laughs) Uh, a lot of times the best way that i try to explain people to people the way the acting and directing kind of was in the gathering and in the first season it lightens up more past the first season but a lot of it's directed more like it's a play versus a tv show yeah and so that's just something to be aware of in both the way the characters are presented and the way the story goes j michael jms because i'm having difficult difficulties apparently talking in general right now (laughs) definitely not a hindrance on a podcast Right. Yeah. He had this whole story planned from the get go. So, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that he's trying to cram in there right at the beginning because he really wanted to sell this as a whole five year arc. And it kind of pioneered serial sci fi as opposed to episodic because he did have all this stuff planned out from the beginning and he had little trap doors set here and there so that actors could bow out if needed and there'd be a way to progress the story without that particular character anymore. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I knew the serialized thing, but the the trap door thing is a clever idea. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, we had uh, Jeffrey Sinclair and John Sheridan and written by somebody whose initials are also JS. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that whole commander role was a little bit of wish fulfillment, for sure. But... Oh, I didn't even put that together. Okay, well, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I have been very, very into this fandom for a long time, so gotcha. I'll definitely happily provide little tidbits like that here and there. <laughs> cool, cool.
the next scene, we are introduced to Jakar as he storms onto Babylon 5 C&C, and I kind of like his almost uh, operaic way of speaking in a way. He's very much like, Lieutenant Commander! You almost oh, expect him to break into like a musical there <laughs> second. <laughs> he is definitely my favorite character that has been around since The Gathering. I love Jakar. Yeah, he. Um, and- I don't remember too much about him in the rest of the series, but... I, like, him and Londo, I know, like, end up having, like, this pretty good rapport with each other throughout the whole series, if not... Oh, maybe, they are yeah. amazing together. Yeah, yeah. They they could almost be a story into into themselves, basically, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Personally, I think they saved season five. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. So, would you say um, Jakar's race sort of fulfills the role of the Klingons in this, basically? Yes and no. Yeah. In The Gathering, they really do feel a lot more like your typical barbarian-type race Mm -hmm. uh, that many uh, casual sci-fi fans, well, even hardcore sci-fi fans, I think, typically associate with the Klingons. Um, And The Gathering, if I recall correctly, doesn't go too far beyond that. Um, But eventually you find out they're actually a very religious type people in addition to that oh okay yeah this definitely does not give any indication to the religiosity that they might have (laughs) i'm Uh, sorry i'm just laughing at things that i know are to come (laughs) oh good i can't wait okay (laughs) all right sinclair takes lita through the alien sector um you know they adjust gravity atmosphere and a whole lot of cramming of world building into the scene here on how the station works the one of the differences in the tnt edit and the original version is they show a lot more of like alien races behind glass walls and doors and it comes across more as a zoo in the original edit basically so i think they i think it's why they edited it out there for that or for this iteration the tnt version which is sort of the version that's i would say more people are familiar with because the original version you can get it on amazon for completely for free but you have to purchase it it's one of those like add-on things but you can buy it for free so i ended up watching that a little bit just to see the differences it's a little yeah, I weird. I can't remember that all that clearly, but I mean, I, I, I'm sure they were trying to go into the whole, we have different atmospheres available here, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that definitely would come across more as zoo-like yeah. than just showing how different, uh, different races live with different atmospheric needs. Mm-hmm. In one central location. Right. Um, after seeing this, too, um, being, you know, 2021, I got to get used to saying that. And, mm-hmm. you know, them with the mask, I'm, like, really hoping that when those masks get put on the thing, they get disinfected. Because every time I see that, I just get a little like, oh, gross, gross, gross. That's been on somebody else's face. I'm sure there's some automatic disinfectant magic yeah. technology future stuff. UV lights or something to that effect, yeah, I hope. Yeah, go. yeah. Uh, so, and through this, we also find out that Lita has no idea what happened to the first four Babylon stations. And so Sinclair kind of fills her in on that. And it kind of also sets up that, like, maybe the psychics are completely oblivious as to what goes on in the outside world until they're let out to go do things. Because it seems like that would be a pretty big damn deal that people would know that, like, hey, we had three of these, you know, get destroyed. And then the fourth one just completely vanished off the, or out of the galaxy. Like, we have no idea what happened to it. It's like, that seems like it would be pretty big news yeah but it's all mystery somebody knows why it happened yeah but you know it's just like the fact that she has no idea why this one was called babylon 5 and that there was a you know four prior to this it seems a little like well how do you not know that but i guess you got to build the world or universe in this case somehow 
Yeah, I completely forgot that she seemed oblivious to that. That is just probably yeah. a moment of poorly executed exposition for yes. the viewer. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it might just be specialized, you know, like a specialized location type of thing or a specialized building type of thing. Like, have you guys heard about Arecibo or however that thing's pronounced? The giant satellite in South America? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, like that got destroyed, but I'm pretty sure like the average American doesn't really know or care. Well, I mean, at the very least, I think they would maybe know about it through pop culture just because, you know, that's been in, you know, it was GoldenEye. I mean, that was my sort of like, oh, hey, there's that big satellite from GoldenEye. <laughs> Which, yeah, but no, I yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I had you... no idea it was destroyed, so. Yeah, it was lack of maintenance just, and it just crashed. Yeah, it kind of collapsed on itself, which is a real bummer. It's very sad. Okay. All right. Then I'll. You know, then you know what? I'll go ahead and give that. Give that to her. Just. It seems like. I, I guess in a you know galaxy full of things that something like sort of like you know a UN type thing that maybe you would at least know about. But I mean, I guess we can sort of forgive her for that if she's been locked she, up for years in I, training. Yeah. She's part of the Psycor, and yeah, just remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I also think like. After the first one gets destroyed, the first one might be big news, but later on, by the time the third one gets destroyed, it's just not as more impactful. True. But then the fourth one just completely vanishes, and I would think, like, okay, I can understand sabotage and the first three get blown up, but what happened to the fourth one? I mean, it's, you know, like, just like the yeah, Lost Colony true. of Roanoke, stuff like that. Anyway, I, I think we're getting hung up here on this part. Yeah, sorry. It's fine. It's fine. No, that's, that's what a podcast is for. So Jakar and Lita end up having a conversation with each other about um, the Narns not having psychics, and they were hoping to get her genetics involved so they could um, start having psychics in their ranks. And um, Jakar, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I he do. was not very romantic there. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and Alita just kind of looking at it like, oh, oh, no, 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 I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> now, would you prefer to be conscious or unconscious during the mating? So there is a meeting going along or about the Vorlong Ambassador Kosh and Sinclair starts asking questions about the Vorlongs and like what they know about them. And you know, the usual, like, what they breathe, what they eat, how far they go on the first date. And it's just like, this is another part where I feel like Sinclair's character, maybe you're right there, Stephanie, I think that sort of enlightened me a little bit, that is trying to do a little too much because he smirks to himself and nobody else is even amused at the comment. Like, they just all kind of sit there like, uh-huh. So he's very much like, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Everyone else is just like sitting there like, uh-huh, okay, yeah, you're, you're real cute, sir. Okay, anyway, <laughs> so... I mean, I think that is one of the weaknesses, actually, of Babylon 5 in general, though, is the humor tries a little too hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and while the show itself is fantastic, the writing, while a little stiff sometimes, is usually very well executed, a lot of times the jokes are just kind of like that mm -hmm. with, with Jakar. You want to be unconscious or conscious? Yeah. Uh, Sinclair, how far do they go on the first date? It's always these kind of like juvenile jokes. Yes. Later on, we have, uh, granted, the Ivanova scene with um, an ambassador who wants to mate cracks me up every time. But it, it's still always this very juvenile humor that just feels kind of shoehorned in. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And I have juvenile humor, so I appreciate it. But it does feel kind of clashing with the way the rest of the writing is. It's definitely not to the same caliber. Yeah, I feel like the beep beep joke at the end is a little bit more in line with the rest of it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, so we see a Narn supply ship that Jakar was screaming at trying, um, Lieutenant Commander Takashima trying to get it enabled to be bored or to board onto Babylon 5. And a little tick looking ship basically comes off and attaches itself to to the station and moving on from there because that's basically what the show does it just shows you that and it's like okay so what's going on there all right fine business as usual yeah apparently yeah yeah sinclair goes to meet up with delenn the minbari ambassador and she seems very impressed with the uh, stone garden and you know saying that you know we have thousands and thousands of books with thousands and thousands of pages trying to explain how one one mind can, you know, change the universe, but this does it so much more succinctly and is just really fascinated by it. And it also sets up that they're friends, like genuinely friends beyond, you know, the, um, you know, commanding role of a sort of a peacekeeping thing and the ambassador to one of the races. So it's a nice little setup there. Even if um, when she hands over the information on the Vorlons, I don't know what her reaction is like. I I don't know if either of you guys watched this for this specifically, but her the way she hands it over, like just putting her arm out in a complete arc and arcing it back down to like a you know parallel to the ground, it is just so overly acted and kind of cheesy. I'm like, you couldn't have just like taken it out of your sleeve and handed it to him instead of here, look at this and like I just I don't know what that was it sort of made me think i've ever caught on to that before yeah it's like she literally like takes her arm like she's flexing her biceps and then arcs her forearm all the way down to it being parallel to the ground it's like what are you doing like you couldn't just be like hey here hand it like a normal i almost said human being but i guess she's not (laughs) so anyway (laughs) i mean that scene is even more interesting too especially with you phrasing it as them being friends as you find out more about the minbari and Sinclair's importance within the Membari mm-hmm. and the the history between humans and the Membari. Right. Um, there's also a lot of development that happens between the gathering and episode one in just the lens character itself, <laughs> including much better makeup. So, well, do you know the story behind the original makeup styling? No. All right. So let's go ahead and put a small spoiler warning here in case you happen to be listening to this podcast while you're simultaneously watching this for the first time. You'll want to skip forward a little bit. Jason can mark something somehow. I don't know. Because I'm about to hop to something that happens in season two. (laughs) Here's the warning. If you are worried about a fairly big spoiler from season two, go ahead and skip 30 seconds ahead now. If you're still with me then that means you're not worried about the spoiler. So don't sweat it and on with the show. Anyways, so Delenn eventually goes into that chrysalis to become part human, part Membari. Originally, the script idea from The Gathering was that she was a male Membari. And when she went through the chrysalis, she was also going to transform not only from a male, but to a female Membari, human hybrid thing. Mm -hmm. And you are officially out of spoiler territory. But eventually they decided to nix that whole idea and just keep her as a female 
the entire time, softened her makeup. There was apparently going to be a little bit of digital altering to her voice to make Mira Fullen sound a little bit more masculine as well. Right. I can't remember if they did that in the gathering or not. I don't think they did. It sure didn't seem that way. Yeah. Um, I think that was an idea they nixed right away. But yeah, that was the original idea behind Len that JMS eventually scrapped after filming the pilot, but before filming the series. Um, and that's one of the biggest reasons why her makeup specifically changed so drastically. The Narns and Jakar also softened up a little bit. The Centauri uh, people didn't really change much. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't know that, but I don't think I had put it together with the makeup thing. I Yeah, because hmm. I just kind of learned that. Uh, a few days ago, actually. But yeah, okay, so that, that does explain that. Okay, so there. We end up having Garibaldi go meet Londo, the um, the ambassador to... Oh, God, what is what is the race again? You just said Centauri it. Prime. Okay, there we go. And this is probably... I, I think their their dynamic is another one of my favorites, is between Londo and Garibaldi. And he sees Garibaldi after he ends up losing... Or, you know, in this dice game that he's playing. And he looks at him and... My good close friend Garibaldi at the top of his <laughs> lungs, basically. It's like, okay. I really like that actor's inflections that he does with Londo. Londo is, I would say, one of the stars of this thing. I, I don't know that if I was watching this without the knowledge of what comes further down the line, I don't know without Londo I would have been able to have got any further with the series after this. But anyway. <laughs> uh, so the... Vorlon Ambassador Kosh arrives and they find him unconscious, basically in the, um, like, I don't know, the dock. The Vorlon Ambassadors don't want his suit cracked open, or the Vorlon race doesn't want his suit cracked open, but Sinclair tells the Doctor to go ahead and do it anyway, otherwise they're going to lose him because he's, something's going on and they don't know what exactly happened. And I'm kind of happy too that this Doctor also goes away because, um, you know, nobody's ever seen a Vorlon before and he's seen it one and his reaction is definitely a little tame we'll say like if i had seen something that was never seen before i might have been and especially like you know how they're supposed to be portrayed and then how he explains it later it was definitely just him kind of looking at it like oh wow look at that he's extremely professional what's wrong with you uh, i guess uh, i mean he's stimming himself up constantly so there's that <laughs> Anyway, uh, so Jakar is trying to get Delenn to agree to an alliance between their people, and Delenn's not really happy with the mentioning of the Grey Council, something that will come into play, I think, later on down the road, but really just kind of gets brushed off as something like, you don't talk about it here. We don't, yeah, it's sort of like, you don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> and uh, this is one of the things that I think hasn't, I'm glad doesn't appear again, the gravity rings. <laughs> Do you remember that, Stephanie? Well, I know that they tried to go really like as realistic as theoretically possible for how they uh, handled gravity on the space station. No, no. The ring that Delenn puts on to attack Jakar, basically. Oh, I yeah. completely forgot about that. Yeah, thank, yeah I, I think probably rightfully so, because as far as I've read into, it doesn't make another appearance and probably for the best, because it is a real, real dumb thing. <laughs> it does kind of show how tough the Narns are, but he ends up taking like four or five gravities basically, or times gravity, basically, before Delenn lets him go. But yeah, it's just like, oh, come on, really? So, and it does, it is kind of nice because it shows the Narns also as the upstart race, which is a nice change of pace from it always be the humans being the upstart race in the space 
race space I don't know <laughs> anyway I don't know what you would call that but yeah it's nice having somebody that isn't the humans I'm looking at you Mass Effect from being the newbies on the block I mean I feel like that was also probably a scene to try and show that the Mimbari may come across as uh, a little bit uh, what's the word I'm not really pacifist I mean I guess what you see in the gathering kind of because you mostly just see Delenn that gives you a hint that they are not as kind and nice as she comes across. Right. Because, I mean, she's a member of their religious caste and all that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. she, she is not a very accurate representation of the overall race. Right. Which I think is another great thing about Babylon 5 is you have your main characters of all these different races, but they do not by any means reflect the entirety of that race. Just like we have diverse humans you have diverse aliens in that series right and just like our current president for the next like week or so uh doesn't really <clears throat> represent the united states hopefully right. <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> move on from that because by the time this goes out we'll only have like a week left and thank god for that anyway um so garibaldi is investigating what happened to kosh and he ends up talking to londo for a little bit and you get a little bit of a hint of the centauri empire's fall and one of my favorite lines from this, it might be my favorite line, is... My God, man. We've become a tourist attraction. <laughs> Open from 9 to 5, Earth time. It's like, except, hey, buddy, there's more than one time on Earth. But okay, anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> that is always one thing I've always been confused about, is like how they do the time thing when we can't even come up with one uniform time thing for the for the planet. So it's like, okay, if we can't do that, how does that work for a whole galaxy? Anyway, I... Yeah, thinking too hard about that. So, uh, so Takashima asks uh, Lee to scan Kosh's mind to figure out what happened. Uh, Garibaldi tells Sinclair his alibi doesn't check out um, after Lita sees what happened. And it basically, the short of it is when Lita goes into Kosh, she sees Sinclair greeting Kosh and slapping some sort of gel on his hand that ends up being a poison of some sort. Sinclair's alibi is that the elevator that he was on ended up being down for maintenance, but there ends up being no record of it. And that's where Garibaldi's like, hey, look, right now you're looking like you're pretty likely suspect because somebody said they saw you there effectively and also your alibi doesn't work. So, yeah, Takashima ends up taking over command of the station, which is great because that means she gets more lines. So wonderful for that. Um, <laughs> hey, she did a lot better when she came back in Picard and was part of Starfleet. Oh, and is she? she oh, are. Okay. I have not. I have not watched uh, anything Star Trek in quite a while. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. she comes back in Picard. Okay. Well. Except, well, clearly, as a different character, since it's a completely different franchise. Yes. Yes. But yes. That's like the next time I actually see that actress in oh. something that I've watched. Gotcha. <laughs> so during a council meeting, uh, Jakar is grilling the doctor about who the witness was, and really, when you're listening to it, it it's almost like a, sort of like a Phoenix Wright sort of thing because he really seems to be nailing all the right questions just because it's like, okay, well, Hey, you know what happened. So here's exactly what's going on. So it, I don't want to say sort of like leaning that around by a leash of sorts, but yeah, it does seem to be a little bit like, Hey, I know what happened. So these are why I'm going to ask these questions in this specific order. Ugh. Anyway, uh, Garibaldi, we find out doesn't trust psychics and that led him to investigate Del Varner. Somebody hadn't mentioned, but he was basically uh, somebody we saw get on the station at the same time as Lita. He doesn't 
it's kind of weird because when you're trying to go over this kind of briefly, he doesn't really warrant bringing up or being brought up because he doesn't really play any sort of role until about just now. So you find out that he's a tech smuggler with a uh, rather substantial rap sheet. And then we go back to the council meeting and Jakar moves to have Sinclair shipped off to the Vorlon homeworld for trial. And um, yeah, ends up happening basically. And which is also not good because anytime somebody's been sent off to the Vorlon homeworld, they've never been seen again. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that's basically seems like a death sentence. Uh, Garibaldi finds Del Varner's body in his apartment in uh, a fish tank. What was that? <laughs> I don't know what that was. So, And that effectively dead ends his investigation for the time being because that was sort of his lead as to like what was going on. So Londo uh, and Garibaldi end up talking a little bit later down the road and... Alondo tells him that he was coerced basically into voting against Sinclair to cover up some atrocities that were committed by Londo's grandfather, showing kind of just recent how all this shit was as far as the um, sort of, we'll say, slavery that the uh, Centauri had the Narns under. I mean, there's no will say about it. It yeah. was. Well, I mean, Jakar doesn't like it being called slavery, so I don't know what else you would call it, but it sure seemed that way because, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, it's basically the Cardassians with the Bajorans, because as you said, Star Trek had their fingers on this script ahead of time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, doesn't doesn't. There's no suspicions at all there. So, I, <laughs> another line I do like, and like I said, this is why I think Londo is one of my favorite characters in this specifically. Is uh, Garibaldi asks him, and if you had known, would you have done anything different? And then Londo very, just, uh, kind of flatly, almost just no. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> it's like, ugh, okay. So we find out Sinclair was part of the Battle of the Line. The final battle of the earth Mimbari War where basically every single human being on Earth was sent out to fight the Mimbari, even though they knew it was basically a fruitless effort. It was just a, we're not going down without a fight sort of thing. And he blacks out for 24 hours, we find out, and then finds out that the Mimbari had surrendered. And based on this... Uh, kind of forgetting everything that's happened ahead, it seems like maybe the Mimbari, like, respected the humans. Like, okay, you're willing to sacrifice everything here, even though you know you lose. You're not going to just surrender or beg for mercy. You're willing to fight to the death to defend your people and your homeworld. And just based on this specifically, I feel like maybe that was what happened there. It was like, oh, okay, we can we can work with this. But I, there, Stephanie, uh, you can just yes or no. I think there's a lot more to it than that, correct? Oh, way. That, okay. that has nothing to do with it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I think I think that's a fair assessment if this is the only thing you've seen so far. Uh, Lita is asking about the prognosis of Kosh. So Dr. Kyle, the doctor I mentioned before, uh, says he's turning around and then mentions that Del Varner, after doing an autopsy on him, he's been dead for 36 hours, meaning they, quote, saw a dead man at the casino. And then Lita starts sabotaging the doctor's equipment and gets in a fight with Dr. Kyle. Lita runs out and then runs into Lita. So there's something going on there. I mean, we haven't really gotten into what it is specifically yet. It's like, wait, wait a second here. There's something. What the hell has just happened there? So Sinclair and Garibaldi are looking over the uh, tick-looking ship from earlier that we mentioned. And they conclude that someone helped transport that ship onto there because it couldn't just have gotten there by itself without being noticed. So... That leads, uh, you know, everyone to start suspecting, like, oh, was this attached to the Narn ship, possibly? The Vorlon fleet shows up, basically ready for war. So Garibaldi's uh, tracking the stowaway, wearing the camouflage net. That uh, The camouflage net's something that comes up, and I just didn't feel it was really warranted mention being brought up until just now. So, But yeah, there's a camouflage net that lets people change the way they appear, but it also is sort of a thing where it 
produces a high amount of energy, so it's easier to track, which makes it very convenient for them to track. So, yeah, sort of just a plot device that just like, oh, this is how they're going to resolve this situation. Delenn picks up Garibaldi after he's been uh, hit by the like, weapon. I don't know what they call it. Are they like they're lasers of some sort? I don't know. Some sort of energy weapon. But uh, I am kind of impressed with Delenn, like how she just like squats down and picks up Garibaldi and drags his, uh, you know, kind of lumpy ass just out there like nothing like she looks like she like delay looks like she does some squats like some serious squats because she just picks him up and like doop picks i'm like ooh, i would probably blow my back out doing that good for you girl mm-hmm. but then again she is an alien so who knows yeah true but now i i like this idea of a buff delen i think <laughs> i'm going to adopt that to my uh own head cannon now <laughs> she takes off her robes and everything and she is just shredded <laughs> <laughs> i mean as far as I can recall, there is nothing that can prove that she's not. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Yeah, we don't know what she's doing. So maybe maybe she's using those gravity rings and we don't know. And that's what she uses to work out in. And she's doing squats and, you know, bench presses and stuff. So she is just shredded to shit, basically. <laughs> Definitely my new headcanon. <laughs> Delenn is swole as fuck. <laughs> it matches her personality. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> All right. So Sinclair tells uh, Takashima to seal the... Uh, seal for explosion and i kind of do like this thing that you know there's the artificial gravity where um the station itself is spinning around to create artificial gravity and the explosion basically knocks it off so they have to restabilize the ship's rotation to get gravity back going basically properly and i do like i said i like that little bit of like that seems like it would be sort of realistic because you know you you see like them hitting the thrusters to kind of readjust everything and then you know just like how the tiny little minute movements in you know, the minute space travel we have now uh, has to do that just to make just make corrections, basically. And it also sort of leads into the way that the uh, or not leads into the way, but it the way the Vipers kind of work in mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica. Just these little thrusts of like, oh, hey, you can just do this quick little thrust and completely flip your ship around, losing no momentum whatsoever. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, too, I think that the Star Furies in Babylon 5 are some of the theoretically most probable uh, ships for space flight, at least that type of space flight. I'm pretty sure it was B5 that had a lot of scientific backing behind the designs of these things. Hmm. Couldn't tell you one way or the other with that. I do know I do kind of like them because they remind me of X-Wings. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> they are a little reminiscent of that, too. Yeah. And as I've said, the X-Wing is one of my favorite starfighters because I'm a basic bitch. So... <laughs> All right, and afterwards, Sinclair gives another one of his wonderful, wonderful lines of coffee, two sugars, cream, and aspirin. And as he's walking away, mutters to himself, lots and lots of aspirin. It's like, yeah, come on, man, really? Just, yeah, like you like you said, Stephanie, the, the humor in this I don't think lands too often, so. <laughs> uh, Delenn apologizes uh, about the attacker being in, in Mimbari and then offers the file her government sent her about him, which, you know, again, shows that you know, Delenn is willing to work with Sinclair quite a bit, but also who knows what her motives might be in the long run of this. Jakar is in Sinclair's quarters, and I... Ah, boy, I kind of... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I like this scene quite a bit because they talk about the M- Mimbari there was part of a warrior cast that broke off after the war. The... Let's see. And that Del Varner was running forbidden tech for the Narns. And Sinclair offers Jakar a drink, and... Uh, <laughs> In a little bit of brilliant, I think, uh, 
screwing with Jakar, tells him that there's nanomachines in there, that it, or a nanomachine that's been implanted in his intestinal wall now, that is going to track him wherever he goes, so this way it sort of puts Jakar in the defensive the whole time. Oddly, it also says that it, it will last for about five years, which is also the run of the show, so <laughs> it's like, oh, that's funny. But, and then Sinclair says, so from now on, whenever you erase a toast to the good health of Babylon 5, although you mean every word of it. <laughs> so back to the garden, Sinclair asks what that Mimbari meant by a hole in your mind, and she tries to brush it off. It doesn't do a very good job of it, but um, yeah, Sinclair ends up explaining what poems are, and Delenn recites the old uh, Man from Nantucket limerick, and that's... <laughs> Yeah, I I kind of wish they had just ended on that because it was a nice, cute little thing there of humor. But instead, we get Takashima giving one more line and Babylon 5 is open for business in the most wooden possible way. So anyway, that was the wrap up of The Gathering, which, again, <laughs> here's how I kind of feel about The Gathering. I feel like on paper and a lot of what it tries to do and you talk about it, it's pretty good. But the execution, I think, is lacking a little bit. I... When, when I talk about it and, like, the things it tries to set up and, like, the plot stuff, it's kind of cool. But then when you watch it, you're like, good boy. Okay, maybe maybe this could have been executed a little bit better. So I watched the uh, the director's commentary feature thing that okay. came with the DVD. Okay. And the executive producer guy, he said that he just kind of looked over the script and said, this was since this was the first time he was an executive producer, he was like, okay. Yeah. Let's let's do this, and he just kind of like passed it along. Ooh, well, that explains a lot, Franny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so if you're thinking like maybe it could have been polished more, like he did say that he kind of regretted it, and like, like I I really should have like, you know, pushed back a little. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, JMS is a fantastic writer. He's been responsible for like he wrote and straight up wrote almost every episode of Babylon 5. Uh, there are very few that were done by other writers. And he's been highly involved in a whole bunch of other big things. He's done a lot of comic book stuff. He, he was heavily involved with, like, Sense8. Um, he's a great writer. He has great stories. But sometimes he definitely needs someone in there to help humanize e even the aliens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A lot of times they are very stiff and you can tell that what they're saying is very calculated for a particular reason that we'll eventually see somewhere down the line. And I kind of wish that I could go into seeing the gathering without knowing what's to come. Um, but Babylon 5, like I said at the beginning, is just such a core part of me yeah. that I can't even remember when it was introduced to me. Yeah, I think that's a huge problem is a lot of the stuff was done for a very specific reason. And the fact that JMS like refused to allow ad libbing or anything like that, too, it does create a much drier presentation of the story. And that can be detrimental, especially when you're trying to do this introduction to this fantastic, greatly developed world uh, that is the space station in 22. 58? I don't know. That's one of the years the show takes place, I think. Okay. <laughs> I mean, every single episode starts with the year is 22-whatever. 22XX. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the year is 22XX. The place? Babylon 5. <laughs> uh, but there's this beautiful world that he did develop, and it just 
sometimes the writing is just flat and a little bit too expedition heavy. And I, I say this knowing very well that Babylon 5 and the way he told that story is a huge influence on my own writing. So that's why I'm always thanking people to proofread for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and see, and here's the thing, too. You can be very good at world building and stuff like that, but maybe not character development or dialogue or, like you said, humanizing even the aliens, like giving them, you know, personalities that don't seem quite so wooden at times. And also, I think some of the directing probably could have been a little bit better because it'd been like, hey, if somebody had stopped and said cut, like, hey, can you not say that that way? Like, can you can you do this like this isn't your first line read of this thing? Especially to mm-hmm. Takashima, like it probably would have been a little better off. So, all right, guys, if you're ready, you, shall we move on and break down like things we thought worked? Okay. So one of the things I felt really worked pretty well was the setting up of the history of the universe that JMS built up. It was pretty well done despite having to shoehorn so much information into a 90 minute thing. All in all, I think he did a pretty good job of it. Even if like we talked about just a second ago, the writing and human or and like the dialogue of people comes across as a little wooden at times and sometimes a little forced but i understand like how much exposition they were trying to cram into this thing yeah i agree with that um you also definitely do get a sense of there's a history behind each character Mm -hmm. um they're not just being introduced as here's the new character that you're going to follow and learn about as we go on even with their stiff and wooden presentations of these characters that we see in the pilot it's still obvious that there is more to them that has already been established. It's not going to be something that just kind of comes up as the plot is needing their backstory. They already do clearly have a history. We just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, I, I can agree with that, too. Franny, how about yourself? Uh, anything specific that you thought worked for this? Um, not sure. Uh, so I, I just rewatched it after years of not watching it so and i don't have the nostalgia filter (laughs) so uh i have a i feel like it's very dated not going to disagree with you (laughs) (laughs) i thought uh well it's so much easier to think about negatives than positives well we're on positives right now there's got to be at least one thing in here (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I know you guys don't you, you don't really like Takashima, but I, I actually appreciated that they actually had not white people in it. Yeah, because the series actually does not have a lot of not white people in it. <laughs> that is true. I mean, at least when they recast the doctor, they kept a black actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Takashima gets replaced by Ivanova, who is my absolute favorite favorite character yeah she, um, she was good though and i mean yeah. she's supposed to be russian but she's still european russian so <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that that is a that is a double-edged sword right there yeah, yeah I, I, brought that in and um listening to the commentary it, it did seem like he did want to try to cast a more multinational world that the future has, you know, not just white people in it, um, but it was just unfortunate timing with different actors and actresses. So I, it, it's okay. Um, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I feel like they did a good job of actually establishing the universe. It's, um, it seems 
like in this our little corner of the universe that there's only four major species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, when we like kind of look around, there's there's a lot of weird people. <laughs> like the makeup <laughs> people had a lot of like fun. <laughs> yeah, including so, a, a few Muppet-looking things built in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I still think like they did a pretty maybe it's just like four major like powers, like how like our world has like major nations. Right. And that's kind of what they build upon as the series goes on. There are plenty of other nations so to speak uh it's just the narn centauri mimbari humans and the vorlons are like the big five that are running most of the show yeah and and so i thought they did a pretty good job of establishing like this is the universe the way that we that we are seeing so that was good okay all right. Now, um, Franny, this might be your, your thing here then, uh, but well, <laughs> why don't you, why don't you go ahead and go on with this then? Uh, things that didn't work specifically, anything really, really stand out to you that you're like, why did they do it this way? Well, they, they were so proud of their CG. They were so proud. <laughs> I can't, I can't say that it's bad, but it, it looks like, it looks like a nineties video game. To be fair, Babylon 5 was like the first TV show to do computer-generated effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you, you have to give them props, and they were so proud of themselves. They were so proud. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, they were. And, um, you know, and actually, a one of my friends from RP Gamer, who um, is going to be on the podcast I'm going to be recording right after I get off with you guys, uh, he brought up that they actually didn't save. I think the masters of the yep, that's of the CG. Why we're never going to be getting a prettier uh, version of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, while I was waiting for everyone to be able to reconvene because I needed to postpone today, um, <laughs> I started watching a a YouTube channel where I'm pretty sure I've seen this guy doing like upscaling for Deep Space Nine and other sci-fi as well. But he was basically using AI to upscale uh, B5 scenes into 4K. And, I mean, yeah, you can tell it's faked 4K because mm-hmm. there's still aspects uh, that are artifact and can't be cleared up. But, oh, my gosh, a few more years when we can do that computer processing cheaper, um, uh, Babylon 5 HD remaster might not be so much of a pipe dream because that that AI was doing a phenomenal job. Um, I sent the two of you a link to, well, he basically did one of my favorite scenes uh, of the series featuring Delenn. Um, and it, it's a scene that's heavily CGI. Um, and yeah, you can still tell it's got that that 90s retro look to the graphics, but the AI cleaned it up beautifully. Um, oh, it's nice. definitely not top tier by any means, but it's a lot more watchable, I think, by modern standards with that AI rendering over it. So, yeah, I, I think it's something that could potentially be fixed in the future it, as this AI graphic enhancement stuff starts getting smarter. Okay. Which is in some ways terrifying, but in other ways, <laughs> yeah. always beautiful. <laughs> All Hiller. <sighs> Technological overlords. Anyway, um, Stephanie, how about yourself? Anything specific that didn't work for you? 
Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally I mean, fair. Now, now knowing the stuff that Michael O'Hare was going through in his life um, when Babylon 5 and everything was being filmed and why he eventually actually left the show, um, he was struggling with some severe mental issues. I think it might have been schizophrenia, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but he was friendly if not actual friends with JMS, and that's part of how he got the role. Gotcha. But he is just such a stiff actor mm-hmm. um, that it always makes it hard for me to actually... The character's not bad. The actor seems like a pleasant enough fella, but it's just... You paired the two of them together, and it just didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, and I have a hard time wanting to actually sit through all of the Sinclair... Uh, episodes when he's actually the commander when he comes back later on and he's not under the pressure of having to constantly be performing he's a lot better um but yeah season one and season five of this show are often chores for me but seasons two three and four i love (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's mostly for me the acting for almost everybody was pretty the director could have stepped in a bit more. Um, I think Peter Jurassic as Londo and Jerry Doyle as Garibaldi. uh, And okay, well now I'm naming half of the cast (laughs) (laughs) because I'm also about to go and say, and Andreas, I can never remember how to say his last name. I think it's Katzlis. Um, Jakar. Mm -hmm. This is one of those series where I actually know the names of a large chunk of the uh, the actors too, which I normally even like. Well, Star Trek's Next Generation is another one where I know a lot of them. I think those are like two of the only live action shows where I know the names of almost all of the actual humans that were in the show. Um, Those three, they're just great in their roles, Um, but. Even Delenn, she she needed a bit more direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does get better as the series goes on, but Lita just her character is an interesting character, but you don't get that at all in the way that she was presented in the Gathering. Um, yeah, she seemed more like a plot device that happened to be human. Right, um, and she definitely was. I mean, everything that happens to her in the Gathering plays a role in things that are to come, but you don't get the sense that she was really important at all. Um, yeah, I was a little thrown off when I watched the first season and Lita was, or I watched like two episodes of the first season and I was like, oh God, this does get better. Okay. And then seeing that Lita wasn't there, I was like, wait, what happened there? I was like, oh, and Takashima's mm-hmm. not here either. Okay, cool. <laughs> all right. As for me, uh, things that didn't work is largely what you two have gone over already is bad directing is possibly the thing. Um, some, bad acting some bad writing and a fair amount of wooden performances uh there's a fair amount of cheese in this and you know it was you know early 90s sci-fi i'm not gonna hold it to again bsg's standards because that's completely unfair and then like i talked or i just mentioned with you a minute ago there franny the some of the muppet ass looking aliens that they have there's one in the shuttle that gets i'm trying to remember if it was in the it was still in the TNT version or if not, but also uh, the bartender in the casino was a Muppet looking dude. And I'm like, Ugh, okay, well that didn't age very well in particular. So All right, one look- thing that I do find hilarious though, mm-hmm. yeah, is that one of the random bridge crew basically 
ends up coming back later on as like one of the biggest antagonists. So oh. every time I see him, and it even could work in lore that it actually is the same guy, even though they like give him a different name and everything. Oh, okay. Um, it's a bit of a stretch, but he could totally be like infiltrating into Babylon Five there for oh. a little while. But <laughs> yeah, it just always cracks me up when I see him in there because he clearly looks the same as he does when he returns a couple seasons later as one of the biggest antagonists. Gotcha. All right. Favorite moments then. Let's go ahead and go with that. I'll start it off. Most of them involve Londo, but the tourist attraction comment in particular is probably one of my favorite moments just because he, that, that really does sell the sort of fall of the Centauri empire. It, It just is my God, man, we're a tourist attraction. It's just something that hits pretty hard there. And I, I really kind of appreciate that, especially as maybe a, a, a uh, global empire here is now uh, in its throes of becoming a tourist attraction, possibly, um, you know, it, <laughs> it does hit a little home. So uh, Franny, how about yourself? Anything, a favorite moment in particular for you? Uh, did I have a favorite moment in this movie? <laughs> if you did it, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I would say anything in this movie was particularly a favorite. Okay. Was it the end credits, meaning you were done watching it? <laughs> I don't think I, I did. I did think harsh. there was some. I, I actually, I actually much, much enjoyed the director's commentary much more than the actual show uh, episode or movie, because I, I think the director's commentary gave me a lot more insight into what they were thinking and what they were trying to convey over what they actually did. You know what? I can totally feel you on that because um in the game club i did a few months ago on the uh disney's aladdin and lion king game collection i appreciated the work that digital eclipse put into making this thing a historical thing i didn't really appreciate the games themselves so i kind of can see where you're coming from (laughs) it's like here's the history and here's what we were trying to do it didn't really work maybe but we this is what we were going for maybe if we had a maybe if we had a better pass at it we would have worked out a little better or something to that effect yeah. Well, thanks to the director's commentary, I found out that apparently a lot of the sci-fi shows and movies use like the same three prop people. And so there's a prop that gets passed around show to show. And it's apparently in all the major sci-fi shows and movies. Oh, so that explains that was, a that, lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that kind of little tidbit, I'm like, yeah, that's actually kind of neat. Hmm. He wouldn't tell us what it was, but that's neat. No. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to I think I'm going to have to watch this now or watch it with the commentary oh, now. I don't think I've ever watched the director's commentary for it now, and I'm very interested now. So thank you. Oh, yeah. No, I, I very much enjoyed the director's commentary. Okay. One of the other things that he said was like, oh, yeah, and we have like these data crystals and, you know, like – if you predict like 50 billion things in sci-fi, then at least 10 of them come true. They're like, oh, you're like some sort of prophet. But, you know, <laughs> it was talking about the data crystals as one of them because we're, apparently we're going to get data crystals in like two years. And I'm like, no, dude. <laughs> <laughs> still waiting for it. <laughs> still waiting. Well, I mean, you know, we're still waiting for our flying cars and our hoverboards yeah. and everything. So eventually all of sci-fi will be true. Someday. <laughs> At least, hopefully, all the good parts. The bad parts can stay fiction. Yeah, let's not go with the yeah, dystopian yeah. sci-fi stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with not that ever coming to fruition. So, yeah. Uh, all right, Stephanie, have you thought of your favorite moment there? There's not a lot in this one that stands out. Um, 
I, I guess it would be that it was a definite attempt at trying to show a very thought out universe, not only the world itself, but the individuals occupying it um, in a very compact amount of time. It wasn't necessarily all that successful, but it's something that's drastically different from a lot of early 90s sci-fi. A lot of times it was just kind of uh, the writers are flying by the seat of their pants. Uh, so what you get now is not necessarily in any way relevant to what you're going to get 15 episodes from now or five seasons from now. Whereas Babylon 5 definitely went into it with a predetermined past, present, and future. So I guess that's more of a hindsight thing I appreciate about it. <laughs> um, and I, I can't believe you're asking me this question about something that belongs to what I avidly claim as my favorite sci-fi ever. Uh. And we're talking about the pilot, and I can't think of any one specific thing that I really stands out to me other than things we've already covered, and I wouldn't necessarily call them a favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. All right. Um, any, how about this? We'll go with least favorite moments. I'll give you guys a second to think if you want. And I'm just going to say, unfortunately, anything involving with Lieutenant Commander Takashima, I really, really did not like her. Franny, Stephanie, which one of you guys have anything there? Like, I can't think of anything I really hated about it either. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just kind of a... It's a thing that yeah. involves the Babylon 5 universe, and you don't necessarily need to see it in order to understand the series. Right, right, for sure. It does give you a baseline for a lot of things, but I'm pretty—I don't think there's anything that they don't at least reference in the main series that happened in The Gathering. Um, and the way that they reference it isn't necessarily the— Oh, well, if you didn't see it, I guess you're missing this reference. It's a, oh, in case you didn't see it, here's what you're missing. <laughs> oh, so it almost uh, kind of negates even needing to watch this. Right. I mean, it's a good thing to have, to already have that lore that was established, like the whole there is a hole in your mind. That's a very important, it, it seems like a throwaway line, but it's a very important to the overall plot. Um but you'll still catch on to that if you never watch it. It's just a good supplemental thing if you already enjoy the rest of the, the series, I think. And then you can possibly enjoy this a little bit more because it's not necessarily going to be reflecting what Babylon 5 actually is. If that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I completely understand where you're coming from there. So, all right. Uh, that kind of leads us right into our closing thing here. And that is, would you end up recommending this? I, Stephanie, I think you would probably say no, because the series, as you just mentioned, sort of covers everything you need to know. So this is just a, this is a nice little um, appendage if for it, but really you don't liked, need it. If you really liked Babylon 5 and you want to know a little bit more, then sure, go ahead and watch this. I think that applies to every single Babylon 5 movie, actually. Okay. Um, I do like in the beginning, uh, but even that one is, uh, you can take it or leave it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say you can start off with this if you're willing to accept that it's going to get better. 
yeah, it's definitely something I would recommend with an asterisk beside it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You feel about the same there, Franny? Uh, yeah. I can't really recommend that you watch this for pure enjoyment as a standalone. Um, yeah. I do think if you enjoyed Babylon 5, the series first, and then you came back to this movie and only watched the director's commentary because it plays over the movie. <laughs> It's a lot more. It's a lot better that way. Okay. Okay. That's completely fair. <laughs> oh yeah. So there you that have way it. You watch the movie with the commentary, and it just makes everything so much better. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I haven't watched anything with commentary since like DVDs were fairly new. I used to watch the commentary for every DVD I bought, and you know, as DVDs came down in price a little bit. And I didn't feel like, hey, I should get my $40 worth out of this one DVD. Um, I didn't feel inclined to do that anymore. So Now you can get like Blu-rays for five bucks. And yeah. it's like, all right, I more so have it just to have it than to ever actually watch it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I so, Well, I actually kind of won it from a contest thing from one of my favorite podcasts. But I now have the entire series of Mad About You autographed by Paul Reiser sitting there on, <laughs> on DVD. But I don't know that I'm ever going to watch it just because it's a DVD and now it's on Amazon Prime, so I'm kind of like, eh, I'll just watch it on Prime if I really want to watch it. <laughs> so, Yeah, for shows that I like, that I actually bought media for, I tend to watch it in whatever they give it to me. Mm-hmm. So I will watch the same thing again. One of my favorite things is the audio descriptive service with closed captioning or subtitles because... I like subtitles because sometimes I don't hear things right, and subtitles really clear that up for me. Yes, right but there audio with you. Descript- but audio descriptive service really clears things up. Right? <laughs> so clear. If you've ever watched um, The Dragon Prince on Netflix, and you're ever wondering what the uh, mute general lady, military lady is saying when she's si- doing the sign language thing, you can turn on audio descriptive service, and they will tell you. Oh, huh, yeah. that's interesting. Yes. So, and, and if you get confused by all the p- characters in Dark, you can turn on audio descriptive service and they will name these people who they are. Oh. <laughs> you know, that is probably actually helpful. And sometimes I'm like, who the hell is this again? I mean, yeah. I will admit when I first started watching Game of Thrones, I kept confusing characters left and right until I finally read the books. So do, do you think it might have something in effect that the, so many of them are just bearded white dudes? <laughs> I mean, there's that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, reading the book and having my own visualization helped me figure out, oh, this is that dude, because that dude yep. did this in the book. And then sometimes they did actually change what characters did what, and I was wrong, but whatever. <laughs> we don't need to talk about Game of Thrones <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we could circle back around to that, because there's always that theory that Game of Thrones is sci-fi, because it takes place in the future, or something like that, Ooh, and we lost all our I've technology. I've that one. Yeah, oh, it's, really? Yeah, it's a little, it, it's kind of ridiculous, but I... Can... Is it like the Dragon Riders of Pern? Possibly? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about Young Frankenstein eventually. We can talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, this is ostensibly a sci-fi podcast, but hey, you know, we, we can stretch the uh, definition of that, so... I mean, there's some science involved in Game of Thrones, too. So, I mean, there's science in there. It doesn't necessarily mean that the science itself is fiction, but there is science in there. A lot of people think dragons were based off of bones discovered of dinosaurs, so... True. There we go. Bye. 
<laughs> totally linked it together. So, all right, guys, we need to wrap up because I have another podcast I need to do in five minutes here. So let's uh, let's close things out. <laughs> Time so, to go pee and get water. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah, we're going to be a little, a little tight here. Anyway. Well, I don't really have all that much going on, but you can find me on Twitter where I occasionally write about writing um, or I go off onto retweeting of political crap with my own commentary in there uh, whenever same. something crazy happens. So clearly I was busy this week. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But. On Twitter, I'm Elkrea, that's A-L-K-R-E-A. Um, and then over on Instagram, I do a blog that is basically, right now it's tea, but I'm going to be opening it up to a few other little things. Um, I'm going to basically be adding in like a witchy Wednesday and a fandom Friday type thing where I'm going to include things that definitely go beyond tea a little bit. Um, and over there, I'm Witch's Teacup, Uh Basically, imagine that it's possessive instead of plural. So, which with an S, not an ES. And, of course, I'll always uh, put that in the show notes, too. So, if anything there, we've always got that. So, Franny, uh, how about yourself? Uh, I, I'm i on Twitter and Instagram as Serotopian. So, not much going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, with everything going on in the world right now, uh, I'd, li- I'd like to say that this might date this podcast, but at the same time, with everything that's been going on the last year, it might not date it at all. Who knows? Right. Oh, it's it's been a year, and I I think I think my I think my most succinct tweet I put out in the last uh, last few well now few days uh, whatever in the last week or so has been Jesus 2020. Could you give us a week or 2021? <laughs> could you give us a week? <sighs> yeah we didn't even get our free trial in before shit went south <laughs> no no I, I want my return policy I, I wish, I'm, I'm digging for the receipt right now <laughs> so as for me you can follow me on twitter at Jason Ariola that's J-A-S-O-N-A-R-R-I-O-L-A you can follow me on instagram at Jason Ariola G-A-J that's uh, the acronym for the site games and junk that this podcast is attached to if you couldn't get enough of hearing me um well I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I do do three other podcasts. One of them is the Games and Junk Game Club over on my site, that's gamesandjunk.net, the, uh, you know, ostensibly the host for this podcast as well, where every month or so we get together and talk about games. The most recent one was The Great Perhaps, and the one we'll be doing next is actually Murder by Numbers. We've got a whole bunch of those game clubs up over there for you. Actually, Stephanie has been on two of them, both of them Zelda-related, the first one, A Link to the Past, and the other one, A Link Between Worlds. One of the other podcasts I do is Multimedia Failure over there with two of my co-hosts and one of them that has been on this podcast before, uh, Vanessa Cahill and John Lucero. We do Multimedia Failure, which is a chronological exploration of every video game movie ever made, and we scientifically, not arbitrarily in the least, rank them against each other. Uh, We are 52 episodes in as of this recording, and it's been a um, thing. So, yeah. Anyway... If you happen to be into video game music, I also do Rock Out With Your Card Out, a podcast where I'm talking about video game music. I'm still kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say looking for the formula, but I'm just doing a bunch of different things and just trying new things with the show each week and or each episode and seeing what I can do. And if you happen to be into that, I also have a bunch of bonus episodes that you can get from Patreon. 
Oh, what's my Patreon, you might ask? My Patreon is patreon.com slash gamesandjunk. Over there, for $3 a month, you will get the bonus episodes of Rocket With Your Card, like I mentioned. I think I'm on episode 11 now of that. I don't recall off the top of my head. So that's 11 episodes of Rocket With Your Card up that you'll also get on top of bonus segments on multimedia failure. So you'll get a little bit more of that on the front and back end of the show. You'll also get early access to the shows when I'm available <laughs> to get them edit it up and put up early and you'll also get a catch-all rss feed for all the podcasts i do and for five dollars a month you'll get everything i mentioned in the previous tier as well as a shout out on the show so for the people that have done that i want to shout out to vanessa cahill john lucero alex messenger josh carpenter and eric for helping keep the lights on over here and making me feel like I'm just not talking to a void. I really appreciate that. So, And if you couldn't tell, I'm recording this separately because we ran out of time, so I had to record the plugs for myself and the site in general uh, kind of solo here. But anyway, so I'll go ahead and take it over to the actual end. All right, and that's everything with the show for this month. And until next time, guys, thanks for listening. And Stephanie, Franny, thanks for joining me. All right, thank you. Of course, see you next time. So say we all. 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 Dismissed. Yeah!